Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we are meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. You may be seated. And as you are, I uh, encourage you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And as you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, bring with it your mind's attention and your heart's affection and your body's direction. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to finish our introduction to the book of Galatians today, and then, Lord willing, next uh, Lord's Day, we will begin uh, our study of the book of Galatians proper, chapter 1, verse 1. But today rounds out our three-week introduction to the letter. Paul writes in Galatians 3, verses 19 and 20, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That's the word of the Lord. Our God in heaven, we did not come here today to hear the voice of a man. We came today so that we might, in the preaching of the word of God, discern the voice of the chief shepherd speaking through a mere and weak man. We have been provoked and plundered all week long by the words of men. What we need today is a word from heaven, a word of truth, beauty, and goodness, a word that comes and brings blessing and judgment, a word that breaks down and builds up, In other words, we need the word of the living God, and I pray that today, through the preached word, you would grant that to us, and that as we hear the voice of the shepherd, we would follow. Pray all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. So beginning last week, we were able to see that uh, as Paul is writing to the Galatians, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul sees everything differently now. Because Christ has died and was raised and has ascended, Paul has new eyes. And with those new eyes, he sees everything new, and he wants the Galatians to see everything new, and he wants us to see everything new along with him. And last week, we saw that what Paul sees because of what Christ has accomplished is a new creation, a newness of the Spirit, and a new Jerusalem. And if you were not here last Lord's Day, I refer you to that sermon, which is online. And now that brings us to one more new that we're going to look at today before we begin next Lord's Day in the study proper, and that is a new relationship that we have as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the angelic world and to the covenant at Sinai. If you were listening closely as I read the passage this morning, you should have kind of been stopped in your tracks and said, oh, wait a minute, let's back up the truck. 
Where did all these angels come from? How did these angels get on this train here? Look at verse 19. Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, but that the law was put in place through angels. The law was put in place through angels. You see, church, Paul is one who believes in the reality of the unseen realm. He believes that we live in an enchanted world. Paul believes that there are invisible spirits that God created, commonly known as angels, commonly known as demons, commonly known as Satan, all of which we would agree with, but our problem is that we do not believe they have ever been or have or are a part of the drama, you see. And Paul is telling us that the angels and the angelic world, that they are a part of the drama. As a matter of fact, he's telling the Galatians that the Sinai covenant, the covenant that God entered into with Israel as Moses as their representative, that this covenant was given by God, but actually administered by angels. Look at it, it's right there. It was put in place, the Sinaitic law, and all that comes with that covenant is put in place through the angels. And just so that you see that this is not like the only time this shows up in the scriptures, let's look at two other places where this is made very clear. Back up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, this is where Stephen is... uh, preaching the gospel, and he's going to be stoned for his preaching of the gospel, and Stephen is narrating the entire Old Testament story, and when he gets to the the covenant at Sinai, in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 52, Stephen is preaching, Stephen says this, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now have betrayed and murdered. Now watch verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So here again, Stephen is referencing that the old covenant administration of Sinai, that Sinaitic covenant was given by God but actually administered by the angelic World. Move forward to Hebrews chapter 2, just in case we need a threefold witness. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is, is uh, preaching a sermon in Hebrews about the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant. And one of the things that he's going to draw attention to is that this old covenant that God made with the people of Israel was again declared by angels. And so Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that has now been declared to us by Jesus? And so there you have it in three passages in Galatians, and also in uh, Acts chapter 7, and then in Hebrews chapter 2, we are told 
that the entire administration of the covenant that God entered into with Israel was administered by the angels. And Paul adds to that, go back with me to Galatians chapter 4, these angels who were law declarers, covenant declarers, covenant deliverers, are also put in place by God to guard and to manage humanity in the old covenant. And so Paul says this in chapter 4 and verse 2 and 3. Watch the way that Paul says this. He said, well, let's start in verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the fathers. In the context of this, these guardians and managers are the angelic world. They are the angels. They were the guardians of the galaxy. I'm sorry, people, but this is, these are the guardians of the old covenant galaxy here, okay? The angels are the guardians and they're the managers of God's people in the old covenant world. As a matter of fact, look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, watch this, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, okay? The elementary principles are the structures, the covenantal administration, the law, the calendar, the feasts, everything that God gave to Israel, that entire world that Israel lived in of tabernacle, temple, sacrifice, law, feasts, days, calendars, and the like, all of that, all those elementary principles were governed and managed by the angelic world as representatives of God, you see. So when we put all of this together, here's what it yields. The law of Moses, including the Jewish calendar, all of the Sinai covenant, and everything going on there renders humanity. All of the humanity in Israel were under the tutelage of angels. They were under angelic oversight, under the angelic administration of the covenant, under angelic run institutions and practices. God put the angels in place to manage it all for him. That included the people and it included the law. So that God's people in the Old Testament are not only under angels, they are under the angels administration of the law. And that means that they are a number of things, okay? First of all, what that means is that they are children, okay? They are children. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 3. Paul says this about Israel in its, uh, in its place in the old world. Chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, okay? So humanity in Israel under the Sinaitic covenant, under the tutelage of angels, are children. Verse 3 says, in the same way we also, when we were children. Okay, and notice that Paul is using the we here. He's distinguishing himself and his fellow Jews from the Gentile Galatians, and we'll look at this in a moment, but I want you to understand that. Paul is saying that we, the people of God, under the administration of the covenant at, the, at Sinai that we were children. In addition to that, we were slaves to this covenant, enslaved to these elementary principles. That's where we were. And so Paul says again in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, 
as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, even though he is the owner of everything. And then in verse 3, Paul says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so this, all of this Old Testament administration of the covenant was intended to keep people as children, to keep them as slaves, and notice that they are under it, okay? It is over them, okay? This is important, okay? They are under it. And so verse 2 says, but he is under, okay? So all of Israel is locked under these guardians and managers, and all of Israel is enslaved to these elements, verse 3. And so this is what you guys need to, this is what we need to understand. This is one of the things that Paul is saying. He is saying that the condition of Israel is that they were under law. They were under angels. They are under the curse of the law. They are children. They are immature humanity. They are enslaved to the elements. They are slaved. That is what God was doing in Israel as he was locking them in to that place to concentrate sin right there in the middle of it on the, te- on the tabernacle and the temple for the sake of the world. But what about the rest of the Gentile world? If this is true of Israel, if Israel from the time of the Sinaitic covenant all the way through until Jesus comes, are under the tutelage of angels and this covenant and this slavery and this childhood, is that also true of the rest of the Gentile world too? Is the, are the rest of the world also, all of the nations, are they also under angelic tutelage? Are they also under the angels? And the answer to that is yes. At the Tower of Babel, this is very important that you guys understand this. All of my kids at Beacon know this. Um, but rarely does this ever preach in the church, and I'm not exactly sure why, because it messes with the gospel, okay, if we don't know this, okay? We have to understand that at the Tower of Babel, when God divided the languages, God sent the nations out to do what he told them to do, which is spread out around the earth and, and be fruitful and multiply. But God sent all of those nations out under the guardianship of angels as well. So it's not just Israel that has angelic tutors, but all of the nations in the old world were all divided at Babel according to the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, the angelic world, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Psalm 82. And so that happened there, okay? And as that happened there and all those nations went out, those angels were supposed to simply represent God and point those nations back to God and to what God was doing in Israel, but they wanted no part of that. Okay, so the angels decided they defected and said, hey, we can get worship from these people. We can get sacrifice from these people. We can be as God to these nations. And so they defected from God and led the nations astray from God. Notice what happens in verse 8 of chapter 4. Paul says this is also true of the nations. Okay, Verse 8 of chapter 4. Formerly when you, so notice he went from we to you, okay? Because we're going to ask the question, if this, if this we is all about how, how Israel and the Sinaitic covenant are all under the administration of angels, what does this say about the rest of the nations, the you, okay? Well, verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, watch this, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, Okay? So the nations are also enslaved to demons. 
They are enslaved to the invisible realm and the inhabitants of the invisible realm to, 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 the, to that realm, but to those, listen, this is very important, who by nature are not gods, but they were worshipped as gods. Notice false gods, you see. And, and, and all of the nations, they're enslaved and in the grip of these false gods. In the Bible, we find them out, Molech and Baal and a bunch of other names. The, 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 uh, the Greeks had them as Zeus and, and Athena and Hera and Hermes and all of that. And all of which you guys all have to understand that those false gods are real beings, okay? So these might, they might not be gods, but they are real beings. Zeus was a real being created by God who defected from God. So Athena, so Hera, so Hermes, so the Baals, so the, all of that. That entire world of the Old Testament, we have to understand the nations were under the direction of demonic powers that worked through the sacrifices, the false worship, the idolatry to keep the nations entrapped in absolute and complete darkness. That's why Paul, when in Acts chapter 14 and Barnabas, that's why the people where they were said, you're Zeus, you're Hermes, because they were still believing in those gods during that day, you see. And so what we have to understand is we have to enter into Paul's worldview. We have to understand that Paul believes in an enchanted world. Paul believes in an unseen realm. Paul believes there are invisible spirits, angels, demons, Satan created by God. And that they were a part of the drama of the old covenant world actively. If you read your Bible, they are everywhere interacting with the nations, interacting with Israel. And so they are by nature not gods, but they're real beings... Verse 9, but now, okay, something changed. So these Gentile Galatians were a part of being under those demons, you see. And so they were enslaved by nature, by those things that are not by nature, God. And they ran the show through their idolatries, through their false worship, through their religious practices, through their calendars, and through their leaders whom the demons ruled these nations. And so verse 9 and 10, Paul says, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The Gentile nations had the same things going on as Israel. They had their calendars, they had their feasts, they had their false gods, they had their sacrifices. The difference was is that Israel had the true God and angels mediating for him. The nations were locked under demonic power. And so part of Paul's gospel, church, part of Paul's gospel logic to the Galatians is this. You had spent your entire lives under the elementary principles, the structures, the sacrifices, the idolatry, the false worship of the demons, why would you want to transfer from that form of slavery and go over to the Jewish form of slavery and childhood under the angels and the Sinaitic covenant? It's just you're moving over to the Jewish version of the same thing. It absolutely makes no sense. And so let me put all this together for you so that you guys can feel, okay? You can feel feel what it was like to live before Jesus came. Because you see, this is, this is not, this has fallen off for us, okay? 
We don't feel the change from B.C. to A.D. like we need to. We don't realize that when Jesus came, he changed the world because we don't know what the old world was like. And so we don't realize the radical newness of what Jesus actually came and accomplished. So let me try to set this out for you and put all this together for you. Okay? So in the Old Testament, the seat at the right hand of the Father was empty. You see, God created the seat at the right hand of the Father for an Adam, for the first Adam. But the first Adam failed. The first Adam sinned. And so the seat at the right hand of the Father remained vacant. That's why in the book of Job, Satan has access to the right hand of the Father because that seat is open. He does, there's no one to kick him out. That's what happens in Revelation 12 and in the Gospels. We see that when Jesus gets there, Satan's booted out of heaven and cast down to the earth, roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But you have to understand, under the old covenant world, the seat at the right hand of the Father remained empty. And the entire world before Jesus was governed by and administered by the angelic order. For that, for Israel, it meant angels and Sinai. For the nations, it meant fallen angels who led them astray from God. The whole of humanity before Jesus came was bound and locked in childhood, bound and locked in slavery, bound and locked in immaturity, bound and locked in flesh, bound and locked in a curse, and they bound and lived in a fragmented humanity in which Israel and the Gentile distinction was absolutely everything. That's the world that everybody lived in in the Old Testament. A world of angels and demons, a world of childhood and immaturity, a world of blood and war and flesh and curse, and everyone was imprisoned there. And then Christmas happened, and then Jesus came, and everything was about to change, you see. So look at chapter 4. And verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, you see. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son into that world. Back up to chapter 3. And look at verses 23 through 25. Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So what, so what was true of the angelic powers is true of the law, right? So before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Watch verse 24. So then the law was our guardian, law guardian, angel's guardian, you see tied together in this administration of the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant God made with his people on Sinai. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, you see. Until Christ came. That whole world, that whole structure of that world was intact. And then Jesus breaks in. And church, you have to understand that with the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, he breaks in to that world. And he comes in 
to fulfill the covenant that God made at Sinai with Israel and to shift the angels, you see, to a new place. And he comes in to break into that demonic stronghold that the fallen angels had on the nations, you see. And Jesus came in to break into both the Sinaitic world and the Gentile world and to turn it right side up, you see. To turn it right side up. Because of his death and resurrection, Jesus was going to bring something new into that old world. And finally, church, listen, finally, because Jesus came and turned the world right side up through his death and resurrection, there is now an exalted Adam you see, an exalted Adam who actually took that seat at the right hand of the fathers and restructured the heavens and began the renewing of the earth. The new world began with the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost changed the heavens because a new man was seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus the Son of God, and began to change the earth because the Spirit was poured out on all mankind. So the angels now in the new covenant, they take on a new role, you see. They move from lords to being servants, you see. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 real quick, just so that I can show you this. The angels all along had been in this place of, of, of authority under God, but now that Jesus has come, he is no longer a little while lower than the angels, you see. Psalm 8, we were created for, just to be under the angels for a little while, not forever, you see. We were created ultimately to rule angels. And 1 Corinthians 6 says we will judge angels someday. And, we're, and, and that, that begins now because Jesus, our last Adam, is the judge of everything seated at the right hand of the Father. So the angels now, what are they doing? They're helping you. They're serving you, you see. Look at what Hebrews 1.14 says. Are, this is speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's what the angels are doing now. God sends them out to serve the heirs of God. God sends them out to serve those who will inherit the salvation that the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians is talking about. And so you might not know it, okay? You might not know it, but we still live in an enchanted world. And we still live in a world in which the angels are doing the bidding of God, but now they're not guardians, now they're not managers, they're actually servants who are sent by God to serve the needs of you and me, those who are the inheritors of salvation. As a matter of fact, the world is more enchanted now because not only are the angels servants of the living God sent to serve us, the Spirit of God has been poured out on all creation. The new creation is breaking in and your life is bearing the fruit of the future in the present. You are part of the enchantment of the world. And our world is disenchanted right now because we're not living up to who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We're so bent on material things and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that we're not putting on display for the world the supernatural life of Christ that dwells in us by the Holy Spirit of God because we're so busy trying to be like the world and have their idols and have all their toys and everything like that that there's nothing distinctive about us anymore. So who's looking here for something new when they can find newer and shinier things there? But this, the enchantment of the world is the church of Jesus Christ and as it puts the life of the Spirit of Christ on display, there ought to be something about that, you see. Why? Well, 
Because now in Christ, we've been moved, you see. Now in Christ, we have been moved. Notice what has happened. As a result of Jesus coming and breaking into that Gentile world of darkness and breaking into that Israel world of the Sinai covenant, and Jesus now comes as the last Adam to to fulfill what the first Adam failed in. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, now look at what happens to us. Now look at the blessings of what it means for us to live in this new creation that Jesus brought. Number one, I'm going to lay these out for you. If you're taking notes, this is that rare time where I'm going to lay it out for you. Here are the things that have happened because Jesus has come to us. Number one, we've been moved from slavery to sonship. We're no longer enslaved to these elements anymore. Look at chapter 3 and verse 26. Chapter 3 and verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Look at chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we could move into our sonship, you see. To redeem those so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, you see. We're no longer these little children that need guardians anymore. We're no longer these little children that need managers anymore. In Christ, we have grown up into our sonship and we are full-fledged children of the living God, sons and daughters of God. We are no longer enslaved and entrapped by that old world anymore. Because we are moved from slavery to sonship, listen, we are moved from childhood to adult freedom now you see now God's not telling you don't touch don't taste don't eat bacon right God's not telling you those things anymore that was that was that was humanity in its infancy in Israel don't touch don't taste don't do this on Tuesdays don't do this during this feast everything in the old covenant was about separation you see but now in Christ everything's been united and so the world has been given back to us to put on this so that we can offer it back to God again so we've moved from childhood into adult freedom look at chapter 4 verse 31 and chapter 5 verse 1 so brothers we are not children of the slave we're not anymore but of the free woman Chapter 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not subject yourself again to a yoke of slavery, you see. In Christ, we have been moved from slavery to sonship. And in Christ, we have been moved from childhood to adult freedom. We now have the freedom of the new covenant. We don't live, don't taste, don't touch. You can't do this during this day. You got to do this during this season. We don't live in that realm anymore. Christ has set us free so that we can use our freedom now to love and serve one another because we're no longer that immature humanity anymore. In Christ, we have grown up, you see. And so notice that it's also, we have moved from the immaturity of our inheritance being over there into the beginning of our inheritance. Paul says, chapter 3, verse 29. Look at what Paul says. Chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according 
to the promise, you see. Now we are at the entrance of our inheritance as heirs of Abraham's promise. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God, you see. And so you need to see what's happening here. Jesus has come. We are no longer under the slavery of the elements anymore. We are now full-fledged sons and daughters of the king. We are no longer in childhood anymore. He has moved us to the adult freedom of the new covenant and the gospel and the life of the Spirit of God. We are no longer immature with our inheritance and solely in the future. Now we're, we're heirs of God and we're already beginning to enter in to the inheritance that he has for us. Next, we've been moved from being under a curse to the blessing of the covenant. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Watch this. So, so we're delivered from the curse. For what? So we can be delivered to something, you see. Look at verse 14. So that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, you and I are people of the blessing. We are people of the spirit. We are people of the inheritance. We are people of freedom. We are people of sonship. And in addition to that, we are people who are no longer bound to the flesh, but alive in the spirit. Look at chapter five and verses 24 and 25. 5, 24, and 25, Paul says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We no longer have to serve the passions of our flesh and the desires of the flesh. We no longer have to give them lordship. We no longer have to submit to them anymore. Verse 25, because if we have life by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You say, we've been moved into the life of the Spirit of God. And then lastly, and please do not misunderstand this text. I'm not going to preach on this text today. But this passage is not intended to do away with hierarchy. It's not intended to do away with distinctions. It's not a, way, it's not a passage that intends to do away with creational norms. That is, that is eisegesis. It's not exegesis. And so I don't want people to, what's happening with the verse we're going to look at next um, is just completely absurd in our day. And when we get there in Galatians, we will exegete it faithfully. But I want, one of the things that I want you guys to see is not only have, have all of these blessings happened to us because Christ has moved us out from under angels and now under him, the sonship, the freedom, the inheritance, the blessing, the spirit. But he's also doing in Christ what our world desperately needs to see right now from the church. And it is in Christ, the fragmented humanity, the humanity, the fragmented humanity of Jew, Gentile, that, that separation, that wall that was there, that now is on display in our own day through all of the ways in which our humanity continues to be fragmented in the world. We've been moved from a fragmented humanity to a new humanity. The church is the new humanity. Jew and Gentile united as one. So that Paul says in verse 28 of chapter 3, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Those, those distinctions are gone. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, what God has done is in Christ. He has taken that that world that was broken, Israel and everybody else. And now in Christ, he he has undone the Tower of Babel, you see. You see that, you know who the Tower of Babel is, right? The true Tower of Babel is Jesus Christ, right? He's the link between heaven and earth. And so what God separated at Babel when they were trying to build that tower to unite heaven and earth, God looked down, laughed at it, sent them out, different languages, under angelic tutors to remain humanity in infancy. But you see, in Jesus Christ, who is the true tower that links heaven and earth, God is undoing the Babelic world. He's undoing the Tower of Babel, and he's bringing humanity back together again, not around the Tower of Babel, but around Jesus Christ himself, you see. So that when we gather together here, we are a down payment of the new humanity. We put on display before the world what the new humanity is supposed to be, the church, you see. No longer a fragmented humanity, but a place where men, women, children, and people of every color are are all welcome. Stripe, ethnicity, everything, stratosphere of, of life, We are all united together. We all receive the same baptism. We all sit at the same table and we put on display for the world what the world aches for, which is a united humanity can't be found apart from Jesus Christ. It can't be found apart from the gospel and the church should be putting on display at its very table every Sunday. This is what the new humanity looks like. Look at all of these people coming to this table who if they were out there and didn't have this table, they would be cutting each other's throats. They would be hating each other. They would be fragmenting from one another. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, he is knitting together, back together the humanity that was separated separated at Babel, and bringing together one new man in Jesus Christ, the very bride of Jesus Christ. So why do we go back? So Paul is telling the Galatians, why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to angels? Why do you want to go back to demons? Why do you want to go back to calendars? Why do you want to go back to law? Why do you want to go back to circumcision? Why do you want to leave all this new and go back to the old. Why do you want to leave what's broken in with Jesus Christ, you see? So let me close with this. How is it that we're moved into Christ so that we become a part of all of this, okay? How is it that we are moved into Christ so that we become a part of all of this new, all these new blessings and sonship and inheritance and spirit and new humanity? Well, the answer to that, and this is very important, okay, and, I, and that we're not intending to answer all of the questions that come with this. I'm not intending, but I'm happy to spark a debate. I'm happy to spark conversations. But I'm just telling you guys right now, Paul's answer to how we are moved into all of this is faith in baptism. It's not faith apart from baptism. And that's very important that you guys understand this. Because you see, Paul doesn't disassociate faith and baptism like we do. Paul would be confused that someone would be running around saying, I have faith, but they don't have baptism. Because Paul links them together as the entry point into this. So I want you to, I want you to see this. I want you to look with me as I, as I bring this to a close in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. And I want you to see that in, in the Greek, these things are tied together. They can't be separated for Paul. 
So if you want to argue with someone over this, Paul will be waiting for you at the pearly gates um, so you can have this conversation with him. But watch what he says. Verse 26 of chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, that's good. We're used to stopping there. We're used to stopping there. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The only problem is the next verse starts with a gar in the Greek, for, which means we don't get to separate verse 26 from verse 27 just because we want to. We don't, we don't get to bifurcate what Paul doesn't bifurcate. We don't get to separate what Paul doesn't separate. We don't get to unhook what Paul doesn't unhook. We have to go with the hook of the apostle Paul. We have to go with the chain of the Apostle Paul. What he links together, the chain needs to remain. And that's what that gar is there for, that four, okay? Paul's linking faith with something. And we don't get to separate it. But in our day, we have separated it. And we've made faith essential and baptism unessential. But the only problem is in the book of Galatians, you can't do that. And I know I'm starting conversations that are going to get me in trouble. I just want you to see what the passage says. And then you work it out uh, with the triune God and the Apostle Paul. Look at what he says. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, you see. There it is. The whole reason faith and baptism in the Apostle Paul's mind, they're just, they're all part of the same thing. You were sons of God through faith in Christ. For, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, you see. Josh read that this morning in Romans, okay? Clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You see the difference? Now, we don't have to have circumcision anymore because you have baptism, you see. So it's faith and baptism. And so, again, the point is if you have faith, get baptized. That's just, that's the whole point, right? If you have faith and you're professing faith, get baptized because Paul links them together as the way of entry in. And so bringing this around now, what does this mean for us? What does all this angelic, old covenant esoteric stuff mean. It means that we have the privilege to live as the new humanity. Do you realize that no one else, listen, no one else can. Of all the different groups and clubs and nations and movements and all of that, all of which think they're creating the new humanity, all of these things that are going on in our culture today, this group and that group and this movement and this movement, none of them are the new humanity, none of them can create the new humanity, and none of them can live as the new humanity. All of these other movements and all of these other things are parodies of the church. And one of the reasons why they exist the, reason, the way they do is because we're just not being the church the way we should. So we've got to live up to being the new humanity. Secondly, we need to keep in step with the Spirit of God. <laughs> All right, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We are those who have received the Spirit of God. We need to walk in the demonstration of the power of the Spirit's fruit-bearing in our very lives. We need to live ultimately, our ultimate allegiance needs to be that we're sons and daughters of God, and that has to have our greatest allegiance over everything. And then we need to show the world what true freedom is. True freedom is not freedom from constraints to do whatever I want. Freedom 
freedom, Christian freedom is freedom from sin, from flesh, and from the curse so that we might live in the freedom that Christ has for us that sends us out to serve one another. And all of that, the new humanity, the life of the Spirit, our sonship, our being children of God, and our freedom, all of it converges on this table. We receive it all at this table, we enact it all at this table, and we are sent out from this table to be who Christ has called us to be, a free people in Jesus Christ who are growing up in him and showing the world what the future will be like with a little bit of taste that comes from the church. And by God's grace, may we live up to what we are called to live by his grace and not be snookered into, pulled back into lives of immaturity and slavery to things that Christ has set us free from. Lord Jesus, seal your word unto us today and get us going in the book of Galatians next Lord's Day. May your people have heard the faithful voice of Jesus Christ today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.